Uh, welcome to the Integral Stage Author Series. I'm Layman Pascal in conversation with Theo Horesh. Is it Horesh or Horesh? Uh, either. Okay. His yeah. new book, the Fascism This Time, is a collection of sociopolitical and moral analyses of how right-wing authoritarian fascism emerges historically and has been emerging in contemporary democracies, including the United States. How do we stop it in the short term, and how do we stop doing the long-term things that make us vulnerable to it in general? Hi, Theo. <laughs> hey, it's great to be here. Uh, let me say a couple of quick things, and then we'll get into some questions. First of all, I was pleasantly surprised to see myself named in the acknowledgments. <laughs> <laughs> You've had some great ideas. You've had so, it's, it's all about the perspective, it, opening up new perspectives. Um, the other thing I wanted to say up front is, for me, any book that quotes Marshall McLuhan, Wilhelm Reich, Ken Wilber, Guy Debord, and Francis Fukuyama all together is coming <laughs> from a smart, complex, independently-minded, morally concerned person with a big scope. And I think that's <laughs> something people could appreciate regardless of whether they agree with the politics of the book or not. So well done on that. Good, good. First question, what makes the fascism different this time? Oh, well, the first fascism was disciplined. It was orderly. It ran like a machine. It used radio to make pronouncements that were listened to, abided by, and believed in, um, that could be backed up with more and more propaganda, and that if you just shut down a little bit of the dissent, it wouldn't be questioned. But the fascism this time comes in the information age and in the age of social media. So it's picked apart, it's seen through, it's turned into a, the comedy that it always was. Hitler was viewed as a clown throughout the 20s. Um, he was a frightening clown, but a clown nevertheless. Um, but now we see how leaders like Trump and Bolsonaro and Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines are, are clownish, they're disorderly, they're slovenly, they're foolish, and that they lie constantly. So that's the first thing that's really different this time around, is that we're in a different mode of production, a different, um, we have a different technological infrastructure, different communication infrastructure that allows us to see through it. And it looks more clownish. But the second thing that makes it distinctive this time around is that it's an old and worn out ideology. It's not even an ideology. It's just kind of a tendency. I mean, there's a sense in which you can see the tendency towards fascism as primordial. I first got that insight when I was watching The Lion King, of all things, and was like, this is fascism. That what, what, the, what uh, Simba, I can't even remember, is, is, um, is up against is fascism. Now, if you look at it through that primordial lens, you'll see that, well, these tendencies are always there to try to overturn a moral order, invert it, and put the bad, the worst person, the worst leader at the top, and then follow behind them and unleash the id, unleash all of your vices, and justify them through, through getting ahead in that order. That, that, that tendency is always there. But this time, we're also coming on the heels of a worn out ideology that's old, that's dead, and all that we've got behind the fascism this time is the tendency itself. So on the one hand, we're in a different technological and information context where this is occurring. And on the other hand, we're less identified with the philosophy of fascism 
and it's more obvious that it's just a generalized tendency. Absolutely. And then the third difference is that we're living in a world that has, for quite some time now, been trying to abide by the norm has been democracy with basic standards of human rights, where genocide will make you a pariah, where taking land from other countries is virtually unheard of, although Putin revived that in 2014 and 2009 in Georgia. Um, it's mostly unheard of today. So a lot of the things that, and we have deeply entrenched democratic institutions in developed countries, and we even have the semblance of democracy in most middle-income countries. Division of powers, um, the expectation of the vote, authoritarian traditions are dying, there's no authoritarian ideal. So to actually create a fascist state as opposed to just having a fascist leader with a fascist following and maybe a proto-fascist party, it's much more difficult. It's good, it will take longer. But fascism always took longer to work its mayhem than most people tend to believe. So it sounds like you're optimistic just in terms of it's more difficult for today's fascist. <laughs> more difficult for today's fascist. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, what do you make of a place like China, whose authoritarian control looks a little bit more like those classical systems of top-down control and is finding ways to sort of hack the new technological arena in order to give us a more classical oppression? Absolutely. There's all sorts of authoritarianism. We have authoritarianism on the left. We have authoritarianism on the right. We have, um, I think of China as, as a kind of right-wing authoritarianism that where the leaders are rational, they um, are highly structured, they haven't unleashed the id. They're not, okay, they are carrying out a ruthless campaign against the minority Uyghur population, but you don't have the whole society banded together in these nationalist campaigns of racist hate. Maybe you do more than I think. Maybe that's been happening in the last few years. I stopped watching China closely about a decade ago. Um, I was following it very closely up to that time. You also don't have this element of a forced regression to patriarchy. China is still developing. What they're doing is they're trying to put a clamp on the freedoms that arise with development. They're trying to manage it. Um, so in that sense, it's not exactly fascist, although it shares a lot of the same tendencies, and it's part of the same, the same concerning trend in the world of a move toward, moves towards authoritarianism in all the major countries of the world, um, aside from a few European states like France and Germany. And even there, you have threatening movements arising that are frightening. It's an interesting stylistic difference. It sort of seems to me that uh, regression, and then the typical form of it is modern to pre-modern systems. Yeah, uh, it's got to go back to a more primitive operating system that is more primitive both in how it handles chaos and how it handles order. So yes. you can get a version where the regression starts with chaos and summons a more primitive order, but you could get a similar regression that starts with over control and ends up in chaos. 
Oh, beautiful. Down the Chinese route. <laughs> I love it. It's interesting when you start looking at that, well, is the regression to blue, to amber, or is it to red? Um, is it to early, the earliest modern conventional big state um, religion, big empire bound together by religion um, and strong leaders who maintain a strong rule of law that's mythologized? Or is it just tearing it up, um, tearing down all social norms and institutions and banding behind sort of power God um, who's also mythologized, who's loved for their power, or in the case of the fascism this time, love for their vices, um, love for their ability to break all norms, all rules, all laws, um, and to just do harm. Um, that to me is, I mean, that's a big question. What I see, you know, how far down the, the ladder of development do you want to go? I think, I think Trump wants to go really low. It's, it's, it's a lot more red than where he's trying to take us. I don't know if Putin wants to go as low, but I'd still consider him a fascist. Rodrigo Duterte, wow. I mean... I'm not sure where the numbers are at now. He, he kicked off his presidency, killing 12,000 drug users. Um, and they would just shoot them in the slums, often wrap their heads up in masking tape with notes beside them saying they were being killed for their drug use, not even drug dealing. And uh, then he comes along and compares himself to Hitler and says he's... Um, willing to kill 3 million more as Hitler did. Got the numbers wrong, but I guess if you're comparing yourself to Hitler, you're probably not very good at math or much else besides. But um, so, yeah, it's interesting whether you're going, whether you're going from order to chaos or chaos to order with your fascism, but also how far down do you want to go? Yeah, I, I would think it's much more common to see a, a single stage regression in terms of systems, but that could be enabled by individuals who are at a more primitive level or have a great disparity in their right. different lines of intelligence. Right. But then it would also depend on things like, like how healthy is your traditionalism underneath your modernism? If it's unhealthy traditionalism, then it's going to be regressing to just barbarism whenever it can. Yeah. And at the same time, any kingdom system still runs a tribal protocol underneath, right? It's what it, its stability is based on harvesting the system before it somehow. So it's always, if you watch how Amber operates, it operates partly through new emergent qualities that red didn't have, but also through the way it exploits and uses red technologies. Interesting. It does make it a complicated situation to analyze. Interesting. I think one of the things that we don't tend to think about is how many different ways a system can regress. Um, and by that, I mean, you can have a system that retrenches a business that's grown too bloated. It has to remove some employees, has to firm up some systems, um, has to go back to the basics, clarify its message again. You can have a country that tries to do that. It's much harder to do with country. And you often hear this from more old school Republicans. I mean, this was a huge part of the Mitt Romney campaign. You had the classic consultant hatchet man who goes and 
kills jobs, firms retrenches businesses trying to do the same thing with our country, you'll often have, now that can be quite conscious as a conscious retrenchment. There can be a sort of um, aborted development. Well, we've tried to do all these things. We've tried to move to green, but we, we botched it up. And so we're having to go back and get things right. And maybe we're not very conscious of it. So it was an aborted development or just a simple regression. We couldn't handle it. It was too, it was too heady. It was too complex. It was, um, and, and we just found ourselves failing and we moved back to some previous system. I mean, in this case, I'm continually talking about orange mostly. And oh, maybe we, maybe we kept regressing backwards. We didn't know. Once we started regressing, we didn't know how to stabilize ourselves. Just as you can have runaway development, you can have runaway regression. You can have a very conscious regression that goes further. It's not just a retrenchment. You actually want to go back. It's romantic. Um, it somehow romanticizes the past or a lower level of development. But the fascism, it's forced. That's what's, that's what's so... And it's almost as if there's a revelry in the, the force with which they try to make others regress with them. And that is supported by more sophisticated people in an interesting way, right? That people want to, there's an anarchic glee to pulling all the wiring out of the system, right? And it will, eventually that will lead you back to a previous operating system. Right. Although those early operating systems like kingdom culture took a long time to get going. It's early versions are quite chaotic and barbaric, yeah. right? So if, you, if we were to roll back to amber, you'd probably have a hellscape for a while before any kind of amber norms restabilized. Right. But the person who's starting that process more actively, because it's already latent in the tendencies of the culture, the person who starts pulling the wires out, it's very liberating. It's very freeing. We're going to yeah. let go of a lot of things, which has both a therapeutic value because it resembles the drawing down into our simpler functions that we might need to do in order to purify or like you say, to re-secure them. But it's also very attractive to people who've had glimpses of higher possibilities that might operate like forms of heuristic logic that operate outside of linear rationality or yeah. the, the sheer possibilities of instinctive and intuitive intelligence. Yeah. Or the fact that we need to move forward into a society that makes a radical shift and feels significantly more liberating than the one we've been living under. So there's a lot of people who have that feeling and they don't oppose the fascist as directly as they might because they're sympathetic yeah. to the kind of thing it might represent. Yeah. A lot of people think there's some interesting aspects to Trump and it's mostly the way they could interpret someone else embodying similar aspects, but they put it on him because he's at the center of the conversation. So what do you make of this, you know, the way higher tendencies might make some people vulnerable to the appearance of lower tendencies? Oh, that's, that's brilliant. Well, one of the things happen, one of the things that happens with higher development of any kind, when you move higher, you, as you're making that move, you're usually not stable. The system hasn't stabilized. Um, this could be your patterns of friendship, your habits in life, um, your practices, they're all new, whatever it is you've taken on. But you've also taken on a wider viewpoint. Now, there's stresses involved in taking on any wider viewpoint. 
you have to think harder about it. You usually have to feel for more. You usually have to empathize for more. There's wider systems that you have to fit together in your mind and that you have to function in. And so there's a stress, there's often a moral burden that comes with that. Now, this is just any leap to a higher level. But in the integral scene, you've got people who are aiming to get as high as they can go. So they're going to be stressing themselves in ways that ordinary people who are just developing over the course of their lives wouldn't begin to comprehend. And that's going to be extremely difficult to maintain. So you're going to want to release. Like the person who tries to be mindful 16 hours a day when they're awake and they try to go into states when they're just functioning in their everyday life and they start to get a kind of stress. It, it, it might work after several years of that, might work after a couple of years of that, but when you first start out, you can start to feel quite angsty. There's a terror that comes with these states that you're maintaining. The concentration it takes is absolutely wearing. And at some point you break and you just want to release. And so now everything's wide open to you because you've gone so deep. And so at that point, you, you, want, to, um, you want to free up all of these things from below. And in a sense, some of that's regression in the service of transcendence, but some of that's just indulgence. Some of it's pathologies arising as you're, as you're understanding yourself more deeply. So what, what I think is happening is we've just gone through a period in the world, let's just say from 1989 to, I think something began breaking in 2014, but certainly with the election of Trump, it was clear we had moved into another era where if we're going to listen to Steven Pinker and his extraordinary research, but also a number of other researchers, Charles Kenny is one, um, humanity was improving on countless different measures. Even as the bottom was dropping out with inequality and the rise of oligarchies, we were democratizing, we were getting improvements in human rights, we were more peaceful, there was less crime almost everywhere in the world. Um, most of the world was developing. We were becoming increasingly interlinked with one another. I suppose that what, what I, I um, my thesis sets forth the perspective that all of that was overwhelming. The inequality gave it an edge, but the globalization, the, the possibilities of, all, of, of being hooked into the internet which, okay, we've been hooked in for quite some time now, but the rest of the world, is it's quite new. Uh, most of the rest of the world, it's quite new. That, that's hard to sustain. That's like those same heady heights that we get to when we do intensive meditation and we're new to it. Interesting. Um, that, that kind of, the Pinker type progress story, has yeah. several different ways we can take it, right? One is to take it very much at face value and say what we need to do is to get back onto that developmental track and use that to provide the basis for even greater development in the future. Yeah. Another way to take that is to say a lot of that development might have been um, spurious or deceptive or wildly imbalanced and come with a lot of built-in weaknesses and vulnerabilities that essentially made it inevitable that it would stop and create a regression. Yeah. And then another way is maybe 
Pinker is looking at too narrow a slice of time, right? If if a hundred million people are killed in two years in the greatest war ever, that changes every one of those statistics. Absolutely. So we, don't, we don't know exactly what's going on, but right. what do you make of people who are concerned about the, the built-in vulnerabilities of that progress model, right? Because I think there's a lot of agreement in the short term that we need to form a coalition to get rid of overt authoritarians. But yep. the danger is that those very coalitions reinforce a kind of society that not only inhibits further growth at a certain point, but essentially makes a hackable system that authoritarians can hack whenever they arise. Yeah. Can, can you get more specific about some of the things you're thinking? Let's say we get Trump out of office. Um, and let's say when Trump gets thrown out of office, um, Bolsonaro goes with him, Modi loses some power, and perhaps the audience isn't aware, and, or perhaps this will go up a little later, Belarus, which was the last holdout from the Soviet system in Eastern Europe that was intensely authoritarian, looks like the dictator might fall from power. The whole society's out in the streets protesting. Let's say he falls from power and Putin's weakened and he has to make some compromises. And all of a sudden, over the course of about a year and a half, we move, and China makes some compromises too. And we're back on track democratizing. All of this, all of this right-wing nationalism and fascism that we've seen over the course of the last five years just kind of disappears along with the coronavirus and we're ready to, we're ready to move. So what, do, what are you seeing us, the, the concern that we might what's go the, back to? What's the potential downside yeah. story of that? Because that's obviously an improvement on the current situation. Yeah. So let's say you get in power then all around the world, coalitions of people who are, feel supremely justified in their, um, let's say, modernist compromises and alliances. They believe that the thing that worked was fundamentally to avoid any large social updating changes and to maintain a strong balance between the left and the right, which right. allows the right to reflourish and allows them to be constantly cutting down the more liberal suggestions about how to improve society. And that the um, uh, vulnerability to the donor class is maintained at the highest echelons of power, which means yep. whoever's money goes up can hack the system however they want. Yeah. And that even though uh, the overall average stats are going up, GDP looks great, the average people are getting less and less percentage of the take and feeling worse and worse about their system and emotionally crying out for something to smash it. And so yes. the next authoritarian gets lifted even higher down the road. Yep. So, so yeah, I, I, I see under that scenario, it's a very realistic scenario that we could go back to inequality continues to increase because we haven't put the, the um, social protections in place that were needed. So with inequality increasing, you have an increase in oligarchy. Um, Aristotle didn't believe that you could sustain a democracy without a decent measure of equality, equality of condition, equality of opportunity quality before the law, even though he believed in slavery. So even going back as far as Aristotle, but this has continually been set forth by political theorists and political scientists that 
um, you that democracy is extremely difficult to maintain in an unequal system because the wealthy will begin to control the system. They'll begin to buy everybody off. So democracy isn't increasing under this scenario. And um, what you often hear on the left is, if this continues, we're going to get something worse than Trump. Now, I've never, I can't think of a historical example where you knocked out of power someone who was at all fascist and you went back for some time and the fascists came back in power and they were even worse. Hitler, Mussolini, when they fell, everything changed. Uh, Robert Paxton, one of the leading scholars of fascism, said some of the closest, um, con close to contemporary examples we've had in recent years of fascists would be Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia, um, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Could say ISIS came out of that and was worse, but ISIS didn't really take over the government of Iraq. They, they were this movement that did this weird thing and they found another territory to stay in. Gaddafi in Libya, you can have chaos. So you might have chaos if you knock someone out of power and you don't have systems in place, but we're not going to have that in developed states. It's possible in a state like India, but the chaos was that they never had these systems in place to begin with, and he was in power for so long, and he set up a mess. You won't get that with Modi. You won't get that with Bolsonaro. It's possible in Russia you could get something worse. I don't see, I don't see it happening in the U.S., when I see, I think the thing about fascism, what makes it fascist is you have these ethnic majorities or they want to be majorities and they used to be majorities desperately clinging to power and they become cultish in following a leader who tells them lies that they want to believe, um, who draws them into um, his inverted moral order and where all of their worst impulses are justified. And then he falls from grace, and it's like leaving a cult. You wake up, everybody looks at what happens, and it's kind of shocking. It's just, it's stunning. What, what did I just get into? What did I support? And all the studies begin to come out into what happened, and, and all the historians come out of the woodworks and all the people in his own party and his own movement who are suppressed come out and tear them apart. Um, but I worry that what we get anyways just won't be that good. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of potential positivity there. Like you say, when you look at the historical trends, you know, fascist leaders have not tended to be replaced anytime soon with even more fascist leaders. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of mitigating factors. There's new information, there's new social values, things like that. At the same time, waking up from a cult depends on the fact that one actually does wake up and that the leader does actually fall. And just losing an election doesn't necessarily mean that's happened. No. Uh, and in the United States, I mean, arguably one of the reasons you see resurgent American fascism is that America didn't have to go through the full danger of fascism yeah. that, say, Western Europe went through. So yep. it still hasn't really seen it to the point where it can say, absolutely not that. Yep. And if you had, for example, a, um, a stable, moderate Democrat government for a while, I mean, that could go really well. 
Yeah. On the other hand, it could create a situation where they stall on any economic reforms and yeah. go full in on the culture war, creating increasing tension in people's actual lives, um, delaying really urgent climate change that maybe can't be handled in a moderate incrementalist way, and agitating conservatives even more by doubling down on progressive identitarian politics, even if yeah. they only do it in a rhetorical, superficial way. So that's a scenario in which a lot of the people who went Trump are even still around for that. And they're even more pissed off now. Yeah. Yep. No, it's not inevitable, but it's a danger. That's quite possible. My guess is they would find something something different, something new. Maybe they'd go back to their old republicanism. Um, they'd find a way to resist it that they felt better with. I don't think anybody's really felt, no, I don't, I don't really know if they felt that good under Trump. Um, I don't think when the whole thing's over, they're, they're going to look to Ted Cruz and say, this guy was actually more evil than Trump. Maybe, maybe he's the one we should be following because I, I just didn't get enough of alienating my friends and family and, and covering for his lies. And I didn't get enough of hating. Um, I, so I think, of, I think of historical examples where a genocidal regime wasn't fully put down after the genocide stopped. <clears throat> I've got two examples in mind. One was in Cambodia, where the Khmer Rouge... They stayed in power and they just kind of mellowed out into this corrupt, just a corrupt or ordinary corrupt government. I don't even know if by the end they really felt communist. I don't know that much about Cambodia, so I could be wrong. Bosnia, I know quite better. And so you have within the state of Bosnia, it's divided into three groups, the Croatians, the Serbians, and the Bosnian mostly Muslims, they just consider them Bos themselves Bosnians. Interestingly, the Bosni Bosnians, um, the Muslim group was the most tolerant, so they included all the other ones. Now, the Serbian group were the ones that committed genocide. It wasn't so much the state of Serbia. They supported it, but the Serbians within Bosnia. And they were sort of protected. And after they lost terribly, they just went back to their villages and... Um, they kept electing to their portion of the government the same genocidal leaders. Now, they weren't talking about genocide. They were masking everything. So they mellowed out in a way, but they never really lost the ideology. So I can see that as a possibility as well, where they, the, the Trump people kind of go back, they lick their wounds, they still support him in some modified form. They deny a lot of the things they did. Um, but really, the, the main issue you're getting at seems to be that there were real problems in the system that came before the rise of right-wing nationalism and fascism all over the world. I, I think you're getting at the inequality and the rise of oligarchy. And you had this also, the, the gentrification of all cities, which was tied up with both of these. That could persist. So there's good reason to push hard in a sort of two-step process. First, get them out of power and then make sure that we don't go back to the same thing. Um, I like to use the example of um, 
the Shanghai Shack getting together with Mao Zedong to throw out the Japanese who were committing mass crimes against humanity. And then when World War II was over, they could fight it out among themselves um, and do their own crimes against humanity. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I think that's where most people are coalescing, which is in a two-step process, like you're saying. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed in the book was this talk about how the the cult leader or the authoritarian sets up conditions in which people who partly support him become compromised in their integrity as they go forward. And they end up having to side with positions far more extreme than they originally supported. He lures them into integrity breaches and now yeah. they're stuck with him. That's a fascinating part. And, you know, it's interesting to think about a moment that comes where people either go, holy shit, what have we been a part of? Or they do that cognitive dissonance thing where they double down on it. Yep. Uh, yep. And it's, it's just uncertain what's going to happen there. And the psychology of people who've been practicing now for four years, doubling down on Trump, but maybe yeah. we're practicing doubling down on Newt Gingrich or whatever other kind yep. of clownish authoritarian right wing thing. Maybe they've been doing it for decades now and they're getting really good at it. Or maybe they're about to have a transformative awakening. Yeah. Yeah, it's so. I mean, I compare this to uh, um, child soldiers. The um, the militia goes into their village, and um, they put a gun in the hands of the children. They bring their parents to them. Their parents are screaming, and they force the kid to pull the trigger and shoot one of their parents. Now they can't go back to the village. Um, so you think of a situation where my friend has lied friend lied to his partner and he lied in front of me and now I have to go along with the lie and I get pulled into it. Now I'm lying to his partner all the time, let's say about his affair. And now I'm morally compromised in a profound way. Um, I didn't want to be a part of this thing. I didn't expect it. I just thought I was hanging out with my friend. Um, and imagine this just countless lies and you're having to justify them to your friends. And now you're a part of it. Now you're the liar. It's, it was racist, countless racist statements and racist legislation that's been put, put forth. And you know, he's a racist, but you've got to defend him because you voted for him and you think this is better than the other guy or gal in this case. And so now you, you're a liar and you're a racist, and, and this is your identity. You've taken on his identity, but you also get some freedom because now you're free to say whatever's on your mind, all the sexist and racist things you wanted to say, but also all the cruel things that you wanted to say on social media when those starving kids came up on that page and you were just sick of it. You were just sick of it because you didn't want to have anything to do with this other country, and you're wondering, why aren't we paying attention to me and my job back home? Why, what are all these do-gooders caring about? Because that was how you'd always been responding to the starving kid that came up on the TV. Um, you just couldn't say it, but now you could say it. Now you're saying it freely and fully. You're in it. This is an evil force. So, so at first it just seems like, well, this stuff is bad. I, I, and I, I point out in my book, okay, racism's bad, sexism's bad. They're bad because they, they, do, they do harm in some way to people for the accidents of their birth. 
Um, they put a they they harm a person because of something they had no control over. But there are worse things than racism and sexism. Genocide. <laughs> There's um, pure sadistic cruelty um, is worse. So we can come up with all, all sorts of things. But just what about stealing? What about doing violence to someone who doesn't deserve it the, the, for no reason whatsoever? What about lying? What about infidelity? Um, there are all kinds of things that are terrible. Now, it's not just liberal values they're going against. So it's a whole moral structure. So yes, they're in, they're in deep now. How do they get out? That's a big question, and I'm going to ignore it for the moment because one of the things that I kept wanting to ask you as I read through the book was, what do you love so much about Eric from? <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. Um, you know, sometimes a thesis just keeps coming up. And so his escape from freedom thesis just kept coming up. I just kept seeing people running from their freedom. And, and I see it everywhere. I mean, there's a part of me that sees every major grouping I can think of regressing in some way. <clears throat> there's some individuals that aren't, but you know, you see the left oftentimes retreating into narrower identity politics or into a very clear economic agenda, which I strongly support, um, a social democratic economic agenda, without the wider global view that so often has characterized the left in the past. You see the retreat of environmentalists from a much broader perspective on countless different environmental concerns plaguing the world, not least of which is overpopulation, contracting into a narrow focus on climate change that centers around the Green New Deal. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to say anything. All you have to do is say we're doomed and cite the Green New Deal. So you see this on the left, but obviously we've talked about how we see it on the right, but you also see it in a lot of the personal development communities um, where they're moving more and more towards power you see it in a lot of the, the new agey spiritual movements where they're moving towards conspiracies. Um, you see it in the integral movement where they're moving towards a sort of attack on green that often feels quite, co that often looks quite compatible with the fascism that we're seeing arising. We can go into that more um, later if it's, if it's appropriate because um, I imagine people have some questions about it. But, but I, I see it all over the place in, in the integral movement. There's a fragmentation of the development. There's people moving into an anxious way of being away from their, their practices that had kept them open, moving away from a more globalized view into a national view of things. Um, it's a fascinating concept. The motive to escape from freedom seems a little counterintuitive even though it has resonances with a lot of spiritual traditions that say that we are sort of actively creating our own separateness. Yeah. It's also very aligned with Wilhelm Reich's work who, yeah. you know, situates the problem in our physiological refusal to experience the excitations that would go along with a more free way of living. Yeah. But underlying all of this, I would think is the presence or absence of adequate supportive conditions to make people ready to feel those feelings, ready to make the efforts of freedom, ready to um, 
be plastic enough to adapt to the complexity of new environments and technologies. So what's, what do you think is missing in society and civilization and people and families such that we aren't ready to uh, handle what's emerging for us? And we can go up the ladder of development from um, start at red. Let's say, well, how much has the millennial generation, how, how, much, how much power and raw strength have they had the freedom to express? What, what is it about information age society that makes people so milquetoast, so concentrated narrowly in little things and so soft? Um, so there, there's a lack of power somewhere. Part of it is the power of the imagination. Um, in a schooling system that focused on the maths and the sciences for the last 20 years or more. Let's move up, up to Amber. So what's happened to our social norms, our traditions? Um, what, what, what has, what's happened to the, those basic threads of community that held neighborhoods together, that hold, held cities together, that, where we knew what history to look to when we, when we wanted to understand our roots? So, so there's a weakness on this level as well, the weakness that, that, hap, that occurs when there's no religion in Amber, there's no mass-based religion. Um, so there's a shakiness on that level as well. We lack the strength, that power, that raw power. We lack the stability. Now we move up to Orange. And we're looking at science has gone off the rails. There, there's no... There's no, oh, I, I, I'm into science and rationality, so I know, what, I know how the world works. I learned that in my K through 12 education, and I, I sort of mastered it in college. Now, if you're into science, you're bombarded with a constant stream of counterintuitive studies, the next one contradicting the last. So... Rationality has become counterintuitive and we've deconstructed it and we see how we've deconstructed it psychologically and we see how our rationality is oftentimes completely irrational and this is just part of human nature. Um, we all know about this and we don't really know what to do with it. So that sort of clarity of mind and that ability to move through the world rationally um, and to achieve our goals, that's fallen as well. Um, now we move up to green. Well, do we have, what is it that, what's the function of green? I usually think of green as everything gets opened up. All of these dualities that had, that had characterized life before green, mind and body, self and other, us and them, nature and culture, they begin to break down. We start to see how these things are actually connected. It's a beautiful time. It's a time where everything's kind of new. It should be like that, where, where it, it's, it's sort of innocent. There's a romanticism too, because we're oftentimes going back and collecting pieces from the past. Um, but it requires a bit of space. But to be green now has, is to be engaged in a constant fight, a sort of struggle against inequality, a struggle against racism and sexism, but also to be absolutely overwhelmed by a vast world that we can never begin to wrap our minds around. Um, we, there's just been, there's too much complexity. 
in the interrelationships, perhaps because we've studied it so much, perhaps because we know so much about it. Um, and in many ways, we just haven't set up the structures of green. So there's a shakiness there as well. Now, I look at all of that, and I, ju I just see shakiness all around. How are we going to move beyond that when all of these other levels, we're all, so many of us are so shaky. We're, we're so unstable. Um, now, one of the things I loved about Bernie was I actually thought he was solid on all of those levels going up to green. I didn't think he was, he was integral. I didn't think he had that dynamism of consciousness. I just thought he was solid on all those different levels. And um, so I think a lot of what we need is that solidity. We need to fill in the blanks. Now, you can do that by going up to a higher stage and looking back on the spectrum of development and filling in the missing pieces. And maybe that's what we need to do. But I also think you can do your next level up the right way in such a way that it integrates what came before. And we just haven't been doing that. Yeah, it definitely seems like the wider the base, <laughs> the more stable you can build higher. Yeah. Right. And it's an interesting take there, you know, to think, well, maybe we didn't get to be barbaric enough. Maybe we didn't get to be traditional enough. Maybe we didn't get to be rational enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when I look at my own life and I think I had some advantages in that respect. Yeah. In terms of the, the material structure where I grew up, you know, the way you were going through it, a lot of it, we own the traditional shared belief system or the yeah. uh, craft of doing reasoning in yourself. Uh, so that's a lot on the interiors. But I think one of the problems we've got is that people don't have the opportunity to experience the external environments and livelihoods and things like that that support that. Like I got to be raised on a large piece of land in a somewhat patriarchal fashion. We didn't really have the traditions. Hmm. It was a very traditional lifestyle. And when I was young, I could go out and smash the shit out of things if I wanted to because <laughs> it was our land. Uh, kind of you come up and then you have this structure. And so you have something like the village life and you have something like the medieval life, right? And you're working the woods and you're fishing and things like that. And when you go into higher levels, you get what all that stuff is because you lived it. You worked out for yourself yeah. what it was like to be like that. But when you come in the city or when they try to give you modernity right away as a set of beliefs in your elementary school, right, there's all these situations in which people don't get to live out the experience of those lower levels. So of course they're going to get weak or narrow or truncated versions of that that make higher levels shaky later on. Very interesting. You know, I, I look back to team sports as what gave me a lot of the, um, filled in a lot of my missing pieces, the discipline of athletics, um, uh, the teamwork, but um, also just the, the fury of it, um, the danger of it in, in many cases and confronting danger and confronting pain. I'm not sure what it, what it would, would have been for girls, what they needed at the time um, that, and, and maybe they haven't lost anything. Maybe they've actually got more freedom now to, um, to let out a stronger side of themselves, um, a fiercer side, and um, to develop their disciplines and their rationality. Um, but I think that's, a, that's been a missing piece. Um, part of it is, I think in this opening to green, in, in, in the blowing open of the world, 
as mind and body, the mind body dissociation breaks down as the conscious unconscious dissociation breaks down as the nature culture divide the us and them that it's inevitably overwhelming and inevitably many people are going to retreat from it. It's going to be difficult to set up stable systems in that phase of development. And I'm actually kind of impressed by where the progressive movement has gone in recent years in sort of laying down the foundations we need for higher development, as I think they quite successfully did in Scandinavia and Northern Europe. But still, the, the pain of the lost, lost traditions, it, 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 there's no denying that. And I don't, I don't know how we'd ever go back to, uh, say, a mainline Protestant church in, in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. Where, where that binds together communities still, but in an open and more liberal form. I mean, I've got a minister, a Methodist minister friend who's trying that in a very uh, kind of integral, kind of green way. Um, it's, uh, and it's interesting to see what, what's possible, but it still feels all blown open, even with the church there and the familiarity of the hymns and all of that. It's a bit of a catch-22 because the idea of getting more stabilized pluralistic and postmodern systems up and running requires them to be very solid and anchored, like you were saying of Bernie, right? In the same way that Trump resembles the transition agents from democracy to pre-democracy, right? We also look at who are transition agents to a system upgrade. And it yeah. seems like they have to not just espouse a higher vision of a more complex social system, but their, their lines have to all get there in a variety of ways. They can't just be mental. They have to emotionally, they have to have a consistency. Yep. They have to be morally there and they have to be solid. So we need those figures in order to help set up a system of, say, green that's stable enough that it can work with and help restabilize the lower levels. So yep. we're in a kind of difficult position, which is you need bottom up to get the new higher one stabilized, but you need the higher one stabilized to enable you to work on the bottom up process which could be conceived as a trap or could be conceived of as having two opportunities yep. to hack that system. Um, I tend to think of green as primarily about enfolding externalities, right? So that if you have a dyad, then multiplicity is what was left out. If you have an individual, then their environment is what was left out, right? If you have an economy, then, what about the people who aren't getting paid in that economy? Yes. If you have society, what about ecology? Just try to fold in what yep. was left out by rationalist, modern, linear logics. Absolutely. Um, and ideally, that leads to greater stability if it can be handled correctly. Yes. Because there's a lot of instability in modernity because of what it doesn't see and because of what it's leaving out. Yep. If you could get all that stuff inside the arena and it should be able to stabilize at a more sophisticated level, but you'd need the right people to do that. Um, you'd need a healthy enough population base to do it in the right way. You'd need to thwart, like you're saying in this book, serious, egregious regressions, but you'd also have to have some method of distinguishing yourself from and putting up a fight against um, 
insufficient versions of progress. Right? So that's that second step of that two-step process is once you get something like a Biden administration or its analogy anywhere in the world, what's an effective move to really make green healthy and make it strong and distinguish it from liberal modernism without sabotaging liberal modernism? Nice. Nice. I mean, to me, it's, I mean, to me, there's simple answers. I mean, on, on a political level, we know what's worked. We just, we know that the, the welfare protections of Scandinavia have worked. Now, we've, we've got a couple of clearly different models. There's the model of Sweden where it tends to be more regimented. It's harder to fire an employee. It's harder to retrain for a new job late in your career. Um, it's much more stable and you have a Danish model that's much more dynamic. You can fire people at will because everybody's constantly getting retrained in new jobs. So there's a lot of personal expression. And then the, the big, the, the only bad thing about Denmark, okay, it's, it's a little dull, nothing terrible happens there. And you don't tend to get a lot of, um, not a lot comes out of Denmark it happens to be the most racist state in Europe, which is, bizarre studies show it to be that um but all the measurable things it's doing phenomenal so we can we can follow those models and those models as they hit green they focused on economic protections social protections um they didn't play identity politics now the u.s has a has troubles that aren't present in states like denmark and sweden one thing, we're vastly bigger, which means every single person has less access to the political system, vastly less. I think I put it together one day and put it in my book that when a Danish person votes for their head of state, they have something like, oh, was it 42 times the, the say that the average American does? Of course, it's going to be different all across the country because, the, um, because of our, our systems, but... So we know a lot of the answers to this and we can needlessly complexify it. Now, when it comes to getting it right inside ourselves, you know, how do we develop personally and socially? That's a different story. I think we've, we've got a long ways to go there. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I liked about the book, because I use the word nihilism a lot. Uh, <laughs> nihilism? Nihilism, yeah. Nihilism. Oh, nihilism. I, I thought it was a... <laughs> I, pronounce it. I, I go either way. I heard neoliberalism <laughs> truncated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a little skeptical about the term neoliberalism, but I'm pretty clear on nihilism. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I see a very straight line from uh, what I would call latent nihilistic trends in a civilization and in individuals, and they're eruption into a sort of mobilized overt form that I would call fascism, right? When it starts putting on uniforms and going around and doing it officially, then that's yeah. fascism, but it's the expression of this underlying nihilism. Now you use the term and uh, you don't explicitly define it in the text. No. So I wondered how you appreciate that word. What do you think it means in terms of the book? First of all, I'll say, Thank you for highlighting in some discussion somewhere on an integral thread, 
the way nihilism is mobilized, um, your articulation of it shed new light on it for me. Um, when I think of nihilism, I think of the urge to destroy things. And there's something, it's like being an asshole. Being an asshole is just, it's not just about not caring about something. It's about not caring that you don't care. Being a nihilist, it's not just about destroying something. How is it? You, you're reveling in the act of destroying. There's like another meta level on top of it where you're looking at yourself destroying something and you're feeling good about that. Um, the destructive impulse is at a higher level or at a meta level. Um, so there's, a, there's two stages of it. Now that destruction can be as simple as, I'm not brushing my teeth tonight before I go to bed. You know what? I'm not brushing my teeth tonight. Screw my teeth. I don't care if I get cavities. They just feel like making this the night that I don't brush my teeth. It's not, oh God, I'm really tired. I got to go to bed. I don't want to do it. I'm too lazy. There's something different that clicks into place. Now, cruelty can creep into that nihilism quite easily. But I, I think it's something else. It's, it's a joy that's taken in destruction. In politics, we're destroying things all the time. You're, you're defeating your opponent in debate. You're defeating them um, in Congress or in Parliament. You're killing a bill. You're, um, you're reversing some horrible piece of legislation. You destroyed everything that was, that was brought with it, and you celebrate it. But the revelry isn't in the destruction itself. It's usually in the, in the good that you're doing. And what I see going on with fascism is there's a joy in the destruction itself. And this, this joy in the destruction itself is why I posit fascism usually leads to genocide if given enough time, and it usually destroys itself. In some way, it's just going to destroy itself because that's ultimately deep down inside what the people want. It's not that they just didn't want to brush their teeth. They had had it. It just had it with life on some level. And it feels good to let go. It feels good, as you say, to tear the wiring out and go on that death drive. So what would you say are um, nihilistic potentials or fascist-enabling trends within integral communities or communities of higher discourse and evolutionary practice in general? Nice. Great question. There's something about fascism where it's always an attack on the weak and the vulnerable. Fascist wants, want, wants to feel strong by attacking the weak. And it wants to think of itself as more highly developed, as better, as superior. And so I think anytime you get a community that's consciously looking at its development over other stages of development, where individuals are highly focused on that. Um, the question of how you approach what's below it is always a bit tricky because you're, you're always going to have some people who their drive is to just go as high as they can um, in a beautiful way and everything's a flowering. And you're going to have people who are wanting to achieve something in that. Well, they couldn't achieve, they couldn't find the right career. They couldn't afford the right career. They couldn't afford the education. They, they failed to develop their talents. So now they're going to develop themselves 
personally. And they're going to get their sense of achievement out of that. Okay, there's some pathologies that come with that that, that are a little dangerous. But there are also the people who will always be drawn to developmentalist movements who want to look down on others. And you see it all the time in integral discussions where there's just an attack. It's a vicious attack on what's perceived to be lower. Um, question of whether or not it's lower, we can leave open for now. And I think that starts to look quite fascistic. The other thing is, in an integral scene, we've presumably, we're either moving out of green or we've just moved out of green, or if we're more developed, we're, we're um, it's, it's sort of in the dust and we don't have to worry about it. But if we're just moving out or we've moved out and it's, we're still immersed in green communities, to any, any of my audience that's unfamiliar with integral talk, I should be defining these things all the time. Multicultural, pluralistic, um, focused, communities focused on empathy and understanding and, um, and all these other things I've mentioned. We look down on those things and we're at war with them. But it's also that the far right is at war with them. So we've got, nat we're natural allies, just in the same way that you're going to get a green-red coalition, those who are pre-conventional and post-conventional, um, they're just anything other than conventional. You're going to have those who are plunging down the ladder of development in a forced regression of fascism, and those who are moving upward, and they've had it with what came before, and there's going to be some agreement. And a lot of the agreement is they're sick of political correctness. Both are sick of the political correctness um, that occurs when we move into multicultural societies and we try to develop new set of norms and new ethics um, to manage um, our kindness and empathy and understanding for groups that have been left out. Um, there's going to be a reclaiming of masculinity for men. Often in green, you're, as anyone who's been through it knows, the empathy and understanding and compassion and openness can get to be a bit of a swamp. It, it, can, it can weigh you down and it can be, it can be needless. And there's something that feels really good about reclaiming that vigor, reclaiming the focus and the discipline. And now, so what do you do with what came before? Well, if you're just coming out of it, there's a tendency to be pretty hard on it. So you're also going to have a, be in a coalition with those who are from, that are plunging down into red and those who are, um, those who've moved beyond green. So the, the danger is you're going to hook up in this way. And then, you know, one of the things that almost nobody ever talks about is how people who are new to philosophy or just deep thinking are oftentimes scattered all over the place and they have no idea what they're actually reading and they misinterpret everything. And I think this tendency to misread people gets really tricky for a lot of people who are new to the integral scene. So they're going to read someone who's actually coming at things from a quite, in a quite fascist way as being open and philosophical, they'll, they'll think they're on the same page. Maybe until they go to their Facebook page. You know, you, you, when you get up close, you see that this person's actually quite different than you, um, but you don't know it from a distance. So there's a lot of ways we, could, we can hook up or get hooked into with this stuff. Learning things is tricky. <laughs> Information is proliferating like crazy, and that exacerbates the normal human problem of assimilating and understanding as opposed to just encountering 
knowledge. Um, now, from the point of view of analyzing fascism, authoritarianism, cultic tendencies, regression, there's always been this tendency to try to thwart rational knowledge, right? to compromise people's intellects so that they are on board with a regressive operating system. Um, and so that loyalty predominates over reasoning. So that's a very traditional thing. But what's your take on the contemporary situation of information becoming highly dubious and overwhelming? Because we're encountering now more potentially charged cultural artifacts than ever before. And we're encountering situations in which it's it's push button ready to make fake videos, fake audio, fake documentation, so that the information we're encountering is less reliable than ever. So we're in a situation of strangeness relative to knowledge. I think in the book you use the phrase, the normalization of confusion, which is a natural historical tactic of the fascist, but it's also part of the general situation everyone is living in now. We just feel like we don't know what the hell's going on, and yeah. for very good reason. So how do we, what's your take on the current analogy to the normalization of confusion, the possibility that there's no going back and confusion is going to be the new norm going forward? And how do we deal with confusion sensibly then, rather than as a prompt to regress ourselves? Uh, that's great. And at first I was thinking, I have no idea. I just kind of want to change the subject. And then I realized, oh, I wrote a book about this <laughs> and people pushed me to have answers. And I had so many answers that they thought I was just a rosy picture about it. Um, so part of the thing is we, when things are too complex, we have to find a way too complex to grasp, too complex to make sense of, too complex to feel around, to explore. We have to find some way to simplify it. So... So in my book, one of the things I look at is the, all of the things we have to feel for and be ethically committed to in a global community. We've got, we, I, we've got people so poor and hungry, malnourished, we couldn't imagine it. We've got refugees whose plight is so dire, we could never imagine it. We've got victims of genocide who, are often the, who become the refugees, who often wind up starving, but they suffer a different sort of fate. And, and this is happening in so many countries. We can't study them. We can't study their situations. We, we can't commit ourselves to them in a highly intelligent and rational way because we, we can focus on certain ones. We can choose a country, say Syria, and figure it out, work on it for five years. Um, but even that takes a lot of dedication. So we're not going to grasp the world and all of our moral commitments to it unless we're extremely de dedicated over some number of decades. But then we add in all the environmental concerns. And we add in the, the basic political concerns, the sex trade, the drug trade, um, global, globalized terrorism. And these just compound upon one another. So, so what do we do? What's the ethic? The ethic I come up with is um, loving all life. So, so we can simplify 
that vast array of moral commitments and all of these things that we have to do something for into learning to love all life. And it just so happens that there's spiritual practices that we can do that will help us to grasp other kinds of complexity that will encourage us to love all life. Now, I think that's the way we need to approach the complexity in other areas as well. Um, it might be so simple that we, we create a norm around fact-checking, which we already are and that we begin to take Wikipedia much more seriously as a comprehensive site. And when a new issue arises, go to the comprehensive site that has all the perspectives laid out. And then from there, work into the different perspectives. And of course, Wikipedia will get things wrong, but the only studies of, that, of it that I'm aware of have shown that it's actually more accurate in randomly chosen articles than academic papers. So we can do things like that. I think we've already begun to do this in two areas that we've gotten sort of mixed results on, um, on the internet. One is, oh my God, there are all these websites we could go to all over the world. What are we going to do when there's so many blogs? Well, we just wound up all going to Facebook, Amazon, and a few other sites. Well, what do we do with the aesthetic complexity? The whole world has been brought together now. Uh, we're living in multicultural societies. It should be um, it should be a mishmash of everything, and it's too much. Well, what did we do? We moved into this millennial, austere, simplistic, Apple-style aesthetic that simplified it all. Uh, I initially set out in 2007, I think it was, to write a book called The Age of Integration that was about how we would integrate all of these things. And it became Convergence of Global of Mind, which is about how do we just grapple with the world itself? How do we wrap our mind, hearts and minds around the world and live well? So I think, there's, I think there's a lot of answers, but the answer is usually going to mean going to a higher level, seeing how it all hangs together at a more abstract level than grounding that. It might be aesthetically grounding, it might be grounding it through a particular um, lens that we use a particular mental framework. It might be through an ethic that encompasses more. Social and procedural and cognitive and aesthetic simplification. Yeah. Uh, and some kind of political analogy to that as well, uh, which is interesting again, in terms of the two-step process, like right now we've set up this kind of progressive liberal and some conservative alliance to uh, remove the current American president. Um, but what comes next is the challenge of either replacing or overhauling the liberal establishment. That seems like there's a need for progressives and conservatives to have some degree of alliance on that because they're the ones who are naturally uh, sensitive to critiques of liberal modernity. But to there's a question about to what degree can that actually happen, right? Can pluralists and ethnocentric people cooperate in any meaningful way to challenge the current dominance of the orange meme? Uh, is it a matter of putting progressive systemic ideas into a more traditional conservative tone? And how does the attempt to balance a left and a right form of progressive green intelligence 
come together to create the possibility of a new center that can challenge the existing center. What's your take on, because both of those are, that's two different ways of asking about pluralism and conservatism, as the left and right of green, but also as green working with amber. How do you feel about those kinds of alliances? I think they're a disaster. So I'll, I'll put it out really strongly because I know that listeners will be, there, there'll be some listeners who are tempted towards it. Um, we've seen this happen across Europe. Americans and probably Canadians don't see it much, but oh, there's been a lot of work on, on what's changing in Europe. And what you got in Europe was often former communist areas, former communist groups, shifting to the right and becoming far-right extremists. Um, and so what you'll get oftentimes with the right-wing nationalism and fascism in Europe is not always, but it's, it's a bit less neoliberal and oligarchical. And oftentimes they'll be talking about preserving the welfare state provisions that the communists used to defend but what binds them together is railing against multiculturalism. Now, it just so happens that a lot of the groups that are targeted are the poorest and most vulnerable groups. So the idea of holding together this coalition around supporting the poor and vulnerable and marginalized doesn't make sense if you're going to pull in the right with the racism. Also, it's repugnant and it, it requires a regression in a way that getting on board with neoliberals, which we might want to go into later, doesn't, um, with modernists, doesn't. I think those modernist values are much easier to respect than these ethnocentric values, especially ethnocentric values in complex modern societies where ethnocentrism can result in incredible pain and it's not functional. It's not like oh, you get great things out of ethnocentrism in a modern multicultural society. You just get a society at war with itself and usually political corruption as a result. So I don't, I don't know how they can come together in that sense. Now, there's another sense in which they come together around conspiracies. The mainstream, modernist, rational, science-based, common sense-based center and center-left is then attacked from the margins of the utopians, the idealists, the spiritually adept who see that everything's more complex than most people believe, those who've lifted the lid off of, re off of um, repressed viewpoints, who see that there's vastly more viewpoints that can be held, and those who are desperate um, to find a way to attack um, what's higher than them, what's more developed than them, the system that they could never begin to cope in that they couldn't socially adjust to, that they're too uneducated to fit into. I think there you have an explosion of the system that doesn't really do any good either, um, where you get this far left, far right joining together. Um, meanwhile, is the Democratic Party really that centrist, as their policies suggest? I don't actually believe that it is. I believe that Obama had a much more progressive agenda that he wanted to accomplish that he knew he couldn't accomplish. When he said that a single payer system or Medicare for all 
was a better system. He just thought it was impossible to get in our system and it needed to be taken off the table because there was no hope of it. And the, and the numbers were different in 2009. The enthusiasm was different. And the, and the politicians that would support it were different at that time. Uh, I think he's making a rational calculation about what he can get through. And I think this is oftentimes what you find with mainstream liberal parties. Now, it might have been different between 1995 and 2003 or so when you had this massive move in labor parties and socially democratic parties and liberal parties, liberal in the American sense of liberal, meaning left of center to the far left. When, when they all turned towards, um, when they all abandoned their social protections, their economic protections in favor of a, of a rapidly growing market, um, that was a very weird thing, but I don't think that's happening now. No, I think that in Biden and Kamala Harris, you do have people who are more like that. Their, their instincts are more like that. Um, but a significant portion of the party that chooses them, chooses them because they think they're more pragmatic, because, because Bernie wouldn't win. Um, nobody would, uh, the, you, you're not going to get a socialist as president. You, you have that whole crowd. I, I support him. He's my favorite, my candidate, but I'm not going to vote for him because I don't think we could ever have a socialist president. So I don't think you have, I don't think the party's as far right as it looks, the Democratic Party in this case, or across the West, a lot of these liberal parties. Yeah, I think there's a, there's an ambiguity about what we mean when we talk about the American Democratic Party. I think there's a lot more progressive spirit in and intelligence in that party than we normally see. At the same time, I think that might be uh, sabotaged by some of their procedures, right? both in terms of what is the inner control structure of the Democratic Party um, that might be inhibiting it from being as progressive as it would like. And also at the individual level, with a character like Obama, there's a tendency to pre-integrate or pre-compromise, right? Yeah. Rather than making an aspirational fight so that we end up in the middle, try to start from the pragmatic middle and end up being dragged to the right. Yeah. So both of those are, regardless of the spirit and aspirations of the group or the individual somewhat sabotaged by their procedural commitments. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things to touch on that previous question, uh, I, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of potential darkness in a progressive conservative alliance, meaning, um, you know, essentially cultivating regressive ethnocentrism while simultaneously sabotaging the gains of modernity. Yeah. On the other hand, what is, right-wing green in a healthy way, and how do progressive movements or candidates get that conservative vote, or at least a chunk that's big enough to mobilize themselves as representatives of the actual population as a whole? I think something that we've neglected in progressive, liberal, in the American sense of liberal communities, um, in countercultural, more open, spiritual, therapeutically inclined communities has been the importance of integrity, basic honesty, 
solidity of character, good solid habits, virtues in the Aristotelian sense. Also a sense of moderation between multiple different goods, which requires the ability to literally moderate meetings, moderate conversations. Um, and I think all of this stuff aside from the last is quite appealing to conservatives. And a lot of what they have a problem with is flaky stuff. So Bernie didn't have a flaky bone in his body as far as I can tell. Maybe, maybe, he, had, maybe he had a bone that was transformed from the 70s, but it, it, he's just solid. He's, he's focused on what matters most and he has great integrity about it. He's a little too intense for them. That's the fire we need in the US. Meanwhile, the moderate personalities are oftentimes a little too, so there, there's, a, there's a contradiction in, in what they need but they need to trust someone. And, and I think the thing they hate the most um, that I'm, I'm as guilty of as the next person in my analysis, in any integral analysis of what's going on at lower levels of development, you're going to sound like a smug prick, but you don't have to indulge in it. And you can apologize after you've done that. And you can honor what someone brings to the table without supporting their whole agenda. And I think that's something that any candidate could do um, at any point in time, but more from below, we could be doing this. So I'm imagining something like calling out bullshit. Like what if the left and particularly the more multicultural left were to call out bullshit more often and have the courage to stand down their own communities, not join another little clique where everybody does it, but stand down their own pages around something they think is absurd. I mean, I'll give an example in environmental communities. I could, I could, I could get hellfire thrown at me for my views on nuclear power. So you saw Stuart Brand in the not so recent years, I guess it's been about a decade or more. He just took on all of these tech issues as an environmentalist. Uh, and, and in his book, um, Whole Earth Discipline, he highlights all the environmentalists that supported nuclear that are really quiet about it, but they let it slip in one statement here or there. They let it slip in another statement. Um, so we, we often lack courage with our own communities and that turns people off. So there are all these ways we could eat into that vote. They're rational, they're honest, they involve great integrity, they involve calling bullshit. They involve calling bullshit particularly in flaky ways that people hurt people close to them. Um, it involves honoring the courage of someone like John Kasich for probably getting, uh, I can only imagine the loss of support he got in his own community, among family, among friends, the pain he's been in over four years for almost standing alone in the end against Trump. Um, as one by one, the Republican resistance just went silent. This is how I think you build a coalition. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I think uh, a coalition requires very human qualities, which are shared by everyone in the coalition. And in order to emphasize those qualities, to some degree, you have to de-emphasize your views on things, right? Like with Kasich, 
it's very easy and somewhat appropriate to say, look, this is not the kind of Democrat we need. It might not even be the kind of Republican we need. This is really not the face of what should be happening. But at the same time, apart from your evaluation of his views and values, like you say, you can appreciate the move that he's making. Yeah. Uh, and you I know, think that's true more in general. I think like someone like Bernie was able to get an interesting amount of support as a human being from yeah. people who otherwise would completely disagree with his topics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I want to say more about Kasich. The moment I heard Bill Clinton open his mouth in the 1992 Democratic primaries, I laughed out loud at how full of shit he was. The moment I heard John Kasich open his mouth in the Republican primaries in 2016, I thought this guy's got integrity. I just felt his integrity. It was so clear to me. And of everyone, again, among all the Republicans that had a lot to lose, particularly a political career, um, he stood the strongest against Trump. And I think you can see that integrity in people where you disagree with all their values. I've Things he said in the debates were better than the other people, but he came to power with the Tea Party movement. You know, he's got very different values than mine. I mean, he, but you can respect other values. You can respect what binds you together at a more basic level. And I don't think that requires us to be integrally developed. I don't think that requires us to be second tier. I don't think that requires us to be beyond having moved past pluralism and multiculturalism to some extent. I've seen plenty of people who are in all other instances green, just respect integrity um, because they've, they've held to the importance of the lessons they learned at earlier levels and they didn't want to leave anything out when they moved to a new level. And that's like, that's having integrity. Yeah, just in this last couple of days, we've seen this thing with Kasich and AOC as sort of yeah. uh, divergent possibilities at the Democratic Convention. But something yeah. that they both have in common is the willingness to take a stand against their own team. Oh, right. And that's something we I think we need to be looking for the alliance that brings together the most number of people who are willing to demonstrate that they can take a stand against their team. Yeah, you know, it would have been interesting if um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had come back and said something to the extent of, well, Kasich should be aware, John Kasich should take note of the fact that he's now part of the extreme of this meeting that's about to take place. And we share a lot in common. We share a lot in common in speaking our minds against our own teams. We share a lot in common in having great integrity and care that we put into our work um, in not being corruptible. Um, and we should recognize where we differ and where we're the same. And he should also recognize that he's coming into a party here and um, it would be nice to do so more gracefully. She, there's no need to get in a culture battle with them. <laughs> um, we must be getting near the end of this now, but... You know, what else could we cover that you would like to cover and or what are you happiest with in this book that I haven't asked about yet? Oh, very interesting. You know, the thing that, that, that I, 
I mean, the, the book started as a bunch of different articles and then the articles were put together in a, in a table of contents and I filled in the missing pieces with new chapters that I turned into articles. And then I cleared out a bunch of the material from each of those articles that was more timely and I made it more abstract and I expanded them. And so the whole thing is just kind of blossomed out. And um, one of my concerns originally was that I would get too focused on hammering against the far right. And I feel like I successfully didn't hammer away at the right so much as this very unique thing that happens that I call fascism. It's so different than what we conceive of as right-wing populism. I was really happy that that came out, that I was able to still be respectful of conservatives, so much so that book's barely been up, and one of the four reviews that's up on Amazon is from a friend who calls himself a neoconservative who proudly voted for Bush, and he's ravingly supporting the book. I didn't expect that, um, that I would pull that off. Um, another thing is I didn't think I would be able to write an accessible book without referencing integral theory that packs so much developmental complexity into it, that, that reference so many developmental moves in a kind of subdued, non-explicit way. Um, I was really happy about that. I was also happy about the thing that I set out to do after Trump was elected which is get to the root of why democracy matters so much. Why, why does it give us freedom? Most, most people I don't think can answer that question why democracy makes us free, not just politically or socially, but personally, what it frees up in us. And um, I think I was able to articulate that in a way that highlighted the escape from freedom that's always present in the fascist forced regression. That felt really good. And I wanted to make this a global book. It didn't just focus on the United States. I, a couple of pieces, they were thoroughly focused on the US and Trump. But, and I didn't just want to reference what was happening in all of these other places. I wanted to really tie it all together and, and speak to them. And I feel like for my audience that I've addressed something that's happening in India and that's happening in Brazil and that's happening in Israel and that's happening in Syria and Russia and Hungary. And maybe they're all not fascist or proto-fascist, but they're really similar. And it seems that the analysis that was mainly focused on the U.S. that, had, that was deeply informed about Russia and Israel and Syria has been able to be applied to other places. And I think there's something about a global view that's, that's a, important above and beyond a second tier view, which tends to be global by nature because it encompasses so much more and it, it's gotta be systemic and holistic and um, differentiated. But there's something about just looking at the whole of the world and asking what's going on in this limited system where we're all bound together through the flows of water and air and migration and trade and tourism and, um, and technological interconnectivity, asking what's, what's true for all of this. And, and I was very happy that I think I was able to speak to it. 
That's nice. I think you did accomplish a lot of those things. Um, speaking of the world, you know, and the way we've seen authoritarianism rise all around the world for the last decade or maybe a few decades, um, it's tempting to ask the question, what should we have been doing that we haven't been doing to prevent this? But the corollary question is also very interesting, which is, what have we been doing to oppose this that actually isn't anything, that doesn't do anything? Because <laughs> very often you can see the people are in the streets, you know, and it's still going more and more authoritarianism yeah. and the protests aren't helping. And yes. you know, what are we doing that doesn't do anything? Well, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and the hedonism and the rebellion from authority per se Geez, that was pretty damn useless. I'd say a lot of the experimentation in the 90s, the philosophical experimentation, the extremes we went to around environmentalism, um, the deep ecology movement, the social ecology movement, ecofeminism. Um, Wilbur hammers away at these things in sex ecology and spirituality. That was pretty useless. I actually would say that a lot of the... Um, effort to do environmentalism through ethics. Why weren't we doing it politically? Well, that, it, we needed to change the systems. And I went through all of this. That didn't work. So these, these were my own, my own failures. And of course, since uh, around 2009 with the Iranian Green Revolution, um, but maybe before then the Lebanese Cedar Revolution, then the Arab Spring, but you had all the all the protests breaking out in Russia and India and Brazil. Um, these were focused on corruption and inequality. But they failed to say that because they weren't well organized. One of the key things we could have done to knock out authoritarianism in the 2010s would have been to adopt um, nonviolent strategy. Not nonviolence, just we're not going we're going to be peaceful or we're not going to use violence but to use nonviolent strategy in a very systemic and clear way and to take control of the protests and stop them at a certain point. As Saul Dialinsky said, you want a campaign to go on only so long and when it starts to lose steam, you stop it. You wait a little while, you let everybody regroup and you come out with something that wasn't expected. And so your enemy never adapts to you. Um, they never figure out what you're doing. Everyone's well rested. This public doesn't grow sick and tired of what you're doing. That alone could have staved off this authoritarianism. And then the big thing would have been a global campaign to end political corruption focused on something really simple like the public financing of elections. It's global. We're not just looking at the United States. Or even better, the voting with dollars thing that was initially... Bruce Ackerman and someone else, a legal scholar that Andrew Yang adopted, which is giving people money to vote. $100 per citizen per election cycle to be placed on a credit card that can only be used to give money to political candidates and organizations advocating for political candidates. Something like that. Simple, focus on it. There's so much we could have done and so much needless garbage that we brought in I really like the idea that people who are resisting or promoting change have been, that they're too worn out 
and that they're too predictable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that seems so, so much so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there anything else you think we should talk about before we finish this up? I think we should talk about what a great show this is. This is a phenomenal conversation. You're really good at what you do. Great listener. You bring up great points. You bring up great challenging questions. Um, you pace yourself. You paced yourself to me quite well. You'll probably cut this out unless you want a, a promo uh, <laughs> for your show and feel free to use it. Well, if the conclusion is that I'm wonderful, I think we might want to leave that in. It's <laughs> <laughs> been really great getting to talk with you. Um, listeners might not know, we've been talking online in uh, discussion threads for a while, um, but I've never heard your voice or seen your face. I don't even know if you have a picture up. So I didn't even know what you looked like. And this is good. It's really yeah, good. It's terrific to get to know you as a human. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you, Theo.